Okay, so let's get started. Um, Max, Christian, thank you both so much for joining me today in this Free Speech in the Left conference. I'm really looking forward to diving into this topic with you. So we're going to be talking about COVID and, and what happened and, and how we got here in the COVID response. So, um, you know, a lot of people seem to be wanting to move on and, you know, a lot of people still are isolating to this day and they're still living in fear. And these are otherwise healthy people. And there are still a few people now who are willing to have these conversations and, and reflect on the past three years. But I think, you know, the purpose of this discussion is to also contribute to that conversation and, and talk about the COVID response as a whole. So thank you both so much for, for being here today. Um, before we get started, let's just do some quick introductions. Uh, I have here with me Max Blumenthal. Max, can you please tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Well, I'm a journalist and editor of thegrayzone.com, which is an independent site that mostly focuses on international politics and tries to fill the void that's been created by corporate media. But we've also done a substantial amount of reporting on COVID, the pandemic restrictions, and what's wrong with the mechanisms of control that we experienced over the last few years, which I guess helped bring me to this panel. I'm the author of several books and documentaries as well, and I've reported from around the world, and I'm based in Washington, D.C. Awesome. Thank you, Max. And, and Christian, can you tell us briefly who you are and what you do? I'm a professor at John Jay College in the economics program, in the master's program there, which people should check out if they're interested in heterodox political economy. And I'm also a journalist, and I write for places like the Gray Zone. And I've written a number of articles during the pandemic about the pandemic, in particular, one very long one for Max at the Gray Zone. So that's that's my story. Yeah, thank you, Christian. Um, that article was a really brilliant read, and we'll try and make sure that we link that in our video description as well. So the the article that Christian is referring to is he he wrote all about how the left came to love lockdowns, and and he refers to them as lockdown leftists. So I I would encourage everyone to to give it a read. So let's go back to January 2021 when we were first hearing about this mysterious virus. Um, in Wuhan, China, and we were seeing footage of and videos and images of people dropping dead in the streets that were being disseminated. Um, and then in that same month, Wuhan implemented a lockdown to some 11 million residents. And then shortly thereafter, uh, Italy became the first Western country to impose a lockdown. And by April, we saw almost 4 billion people in lockdown in over 90 countries. Uh, and throughout all of this, we saw people panic buying and stockpiling and all these absurd items that, you know, really wouldn't help them in any kind of crisis situation. So we had kind of information and panic and fear overload coming at us in all directions. So I wanted to ask you both, you know, what were your thoughts as all of this was unfolding in the first few months? Max, can you go first? I actually want to hear more from Christian because he's been taking on the issue of COVID origins more substantially than I have. Um, but I think 
from my conversations with Christian, we both had similar responses where we were sort of cautious. Let's wait and see what's going to happen and not jump the gun and come out and initially condemn all of the restrictions right away. Um, and then after a few weeks, it became clear to me that what we were experiencing was an overreaction. Now for me, and I don't know if Christian experienced the same amount of pressure, but I was under enormous peer pressure to not criticize the lockstep global pandemic response because I was so strongly immersed in what we now would call the lockdown left, which comprised large swaths of the professional activists left that had sort of adopted me over my work on Palestine and other, and, and, and you know, criticizing U.S. imperialism. The Gray Zone was one of the flagship outlets of anti-imperialist reporting, and China was being targeted by the Trump administration. Uh, the Trump administration was seeking to use the Wuhan Institute of Virology as a set piece for its campaign to stoke a new Cold War with China. So it was very difficult to discuss this from where I stood, and it really took me to the point where it was clear by early 2021 that the government was going to introduce vaccine mandates and seek to impose an experimental gene therapy injection on the entire population and vaccine passports, uh, that it sort of became so personal that I could no longer keep silent. And I had to make a choice between burning many professional and personal connections, including close media friends, or speaking the truth as I saw it and opposing a system of authoritarian technocracy. And I took the latter choice. And here we are uh, with you know, me, uh, minus a lot of friends and professional contacts. Yeah. I mean, I was in the beginning, I was like most people really freaked out and, uh, you know, it's comical now, but my wife and I had taped down the center of our counter and we were like washing our groceries and, you know, I was mad that my mother didn't take this seriously. And because I was so freaked out, I was reading very closely what was going on and trying to figure out what the infection fatality rate was. And in early March, it became clear because there was a study, Iceland did a big study, and there was also the initial evidence coming out of a couple of these cruise liners that were, you know, trapped in a harbor. And, um, and, it, real, and it became clear, oh, th this is not uh, as bad as we thought at first, that this is basically like a very bad version of the flu, but this is not the bubonic plague this is not even the spanish flu and this is you know serious but but not the end of the world and then i naively was like oh so now there's going to be a big rethink piece in the new york times and now we're going to switch off of this kind of hysteria and, and we're going to get back to normal and that didn't happen and instead the whole discourse started getting more and more politicized and on the left more and more hysterical and i also had a colleague who from the beginning was very skeptical of this guy who's a pilot and an anarchist and i guess just generally and his father's also a, an avian disease specialist and he was from the beginning saying this is all about co comorbidities this is everyone's freaking out this is all bs yep. and I, I thought at first that was a really a little a little extreme and then i you know i realized whoa he's right and and this whole thing is totally politicized this is nuts so that's that's how it went for me but i was in the beginning i was as freaked out as anyone and it was 
you know, it was reading the initial science and waiting for the, the popular discourse to reflect that and then realizing that it wouldn't and just realizing how politicized things were, then, then it was like, whoa. And also, uh, as the lockdown started, I mean, I was naive about it. My, my wife, I should say, Marcy Smith Parenti, who's also written a great piece for The Gray Zone, she was much more cynical about this stuff, critical in the beginning. You know, she, she was like, these lockdowns are gonna go on and on. And I was like, no, no, come on. Look, they said it's, it's to flatten the curve. It's only for two weeks. And then when they went on and on, I realized she was right. Wait a minute, something else is going on here. So that's that's how that's how it happened for me. And then I, you know, I was just waiting for it to to blow over, waiting for it to end, you know. And then it didn't. And so Marcy, my wife, wrote a piece in the summer of 21 that Max published. And I mean, at that point, when it was clearly not gonna end in the summer of, of 2021, after a full year of this madness. Then we started, I, you know, I started speaking out, she started speaking out. But, you know, there was that up and down of the surges. And, and it, part of me thought, well, you know, this, this is the end. It's all going to, it's all going to taper off. The madness will end when, you know, when the disease tapers off, but then the madness wouldn't end. That's really interesting. Um, so I wanted to ask you both kind of on a related note, then, do you think part of being critical early on was it's just a personality trait or what was it that made some people critical from the beginning whereas others weren't so christian you were saying you were doing everything washing your groceries from the very beginning um what what do you think it was that differentiated your response from others who are more critical I, I think some of it has to do with a skepticism about the mainstream media one thing that's been revealed to me about the lockdown left is they have no real intellectual autonomy from the New York Times and all the other organs of official opinion. That people might criticize these outlets, but they ultimately follow them. And when push comes to shove, they will not question them and they will attack and turn on their nominal comrades who do yeah, criticize absolutely. those outlets. So there's a, a kind of fealty to the mainstream, even as people think that they're critical. And I, you know, the class basis of the left, this is something Max and I have both mentioned throughout this, is such that, you know, the American left is primarily not made up of working class people. It's primarily professional middle class people. And they are highly status conscious, more so than I'd realized. People are extremely worried about what their peer group will think of them. And they will throw out critical thinking if they think that their social milieu and their career networks will disapprove. So that that is what I think drrives the majority of people. Or, yeah, or it's status oriented, status oriented and credential oriented. So they are naturally attuned to uh, or, or predisposed to respect someone with credentials over an independent researcher or someone who might come from the right, who's critical of a mainstream or state narrative. And that's what we saw with COVID. I mean, me and Christian are, are dissenters of the activist left, and we are very typical of the activist left in our own backgrounds. Um, my father is a scholar, journalist, worked in the Clinton administration. Clint, uh, Christian's father is a, a, a was an academic professor, of course, a critic of the U.S. government, very notable, but these were the, you know, that we come from the kind of background that people in the activist left come from. They're not coming from 
the you know grassroots blue collar rust belt union world and so the people that are around them are very much like the people who would put their credentials in their twitter bios and were suddenly experiencing this wave of ego stroking and satisfaction and vanity during the pandemic because people considered them scientific experts as they called for a hysterical response um, and the longer the lockdowns went on, the longer the mandates went on, the more popular they were, and the more their other credentialed friends with uh, advanced degrees in the Brooklyn left or the Bay Area left would look to them for guidance. And they created this demented echo chamber in which they effectively functioned as the grassroots forces for Bill Gates, Klaus Schwab, and the Biden administration in enforcing something that most, that many average Americans, like my neighbors here in Ward 8 in Southeast, were rejecting, uh, were deeply critical of because it was wrecking their lives. And it also shows how deeply disconnected the lockdown left is from the average Americans or the, the working class that they fetishize. Because where I live in Southeast Washington, D.C., um, the children who were put out of public schools and forced to stay home in small apartments, knowing their parents and seeing what they went through and knowing teachers in these schools went through a living hell, a living hell that they have yet to recover from. And there's still been no sympathy or accountability from the lockdown left for supporting that hell, enforcing it and censoring and shouting down everyone who tried to help those children escape from it. So with lockdowns came isolation and, you know, we heard slogans like stay at home, save lives. These were constantly shoved in our face and there was this moral duty to isolate yourself. And as if by doing so, you're seen as a hero and you almost hold yourself to this higher moral standard. So we saw a lot of that moral grandstanding throughout COVID. And I wanted to ask you both, you know, as this concept of being isolated and, and being under lockdown becomes more mainstream, and seen as a social good, what do you think this will look like for the future? So I'm just thinking of, you know, climate lockdowns as that concept is becoming more popular. What does that look like? What do you think? I mean, who knows well, what it, yeah, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to say Bill Gates was asked about this at the Munich Security Conference, uh, future pandemics or lockdowns needed for other crises. And he said that we need to look to Australia as a model. What happened in Australia? They were leading the way in the enlightened West with COVID zero, putting their citizens in internment centers, uh, locking the entire population inside for months and months. One of the longest lockdowns on the planet took place in Australian, in, in Melbourne, uh, where when the construction industry that had their lives and, and well-being destroyed, rebelled in the streets, they were shot at by militarized police. Uh, the Australian situation was a complete catastrophe. And of course, zero COVID collapsed on its face and everyone wound up getting infected in the end, but not after people's rights were serially violated. So Bill Gates is openly proposing this and Bill Gates had guided, guided the pandemic response from the beginning in the US. And so we, have, we should um, be on, that's why we need to be having this conversation. That's why this conversation is so important, because what the lockdowns showed, one of the things they showed is how compliant the populations of supposed liberal democracies actually were. And when our elites, our ruling elites saw that, it gave them the sense that they could do this again 
and violate our rights in many other ways. Yeah, and you know, it should be noted that people who were put in these camps in Australia were uh, some of them testing negative for COVID, but they had yep. been in proximity to people who tested positive, right? And just, you know, and then when three Aboriginal teens escaped, there was a massive police manhunt in which traffic was stopped and there were searches of people's cars until they found these three, it should be said again, uh, COVID negative teens, right? I mean, this is really draconian stuff and the left has had nothing to say about it. Um, Aboriginals being put in camps as the they were during- of all this stuff is yeah. disastrous. Again, the left has nothing to say on this. So, uh, and we have seen uh, an example at, at UCLA, I think they were talking about having returning to uh, remote learning and locking down, keep not, not locking down necessarily, but, but closing campus in the name of saving energy. So that th those kinds of responses definitely are you know going to be in play, I would think, mm -hmm. and they need to be pushed back against. Right. Thank you. And, you um, know, I mean, at, at the heart of this is a kind of fetishism of scientism, right? And credentialism, scientism, this idea that science is not wrong. You know, science is as corrupt as any other institution in this society. That, that has to be said. Science also delivers us all sorts of amazing things. But to think that science is somehow not been affected by 40 years of neoliberalism is to not understand what's going on in the scientific world. And what's going on is there's a proliferation of subcontracting. There's all of these you know, increasingly sort of fly-by-night research outfits that are competing for grants, and they are fudging the numbers and, you know, playing games with their research. So people people need to be critical of science, not reject it, but be critical of it. And this, uh, the whole, like, invoking of it, this is, you know, as if it's a new infallible priesthood. That's, that is uh, one of the major problems that the lockdown left's credentialism played out as. And, and Christian, in your essay that you wrote for the Gray Zone, you connected the lockdown leftist to Trump derangement syndrome. Can you walk us through that connection? Yeah, well, I think that um, in the U.S. context, and this doesn't explain everything, but in the U.S. context, you know, you have the example of Bill de Blasio on March 9th, I think it is, maybe it's March 11th saying, look, if you're under 50, this is basically the flu, you're going to be fine, we're not going to shut down schools. And two weeks later, he shuts down schools. And what's happening simultaneously with that is that Trump is realizing that, that he can use this as an election. He miscalculates, I think. And so the crucial moment when all reason goes out the window is in late March when Trump says, I want the economy to open by Easter. And at that point, everyone on the left followed the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party, you know, anything Trump said, they said that was insane, right? Uh, and so they embraced lockdowns. And Trump was like, well, they'll own the lockdowns and we'll own the reopening. And Trump thought that the, the virus would burn out by the summer and it didn't. And I think that that miscalculation was part of, of how he lost the election. And there is also the, 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 the resistance by small business people protests at 35 capitals in late March into early April, and the media grabs onto this, and there's some you know, genuinely terrifying images of people with guns marching into state capitol buildings. But that's the moment when it all gets politicized. And in terms of Trump derangement syndrome, well, that was going on from the beginning, this idea that Trump is a fascist. And 
I don't think he is. I think he's, uh, you know, a, uh, a, a grifter. Um, I think he's a very intuitive politician. I mean, I don't think he's a great progressive leader at all. I mean, I think, but I don't think he's, you know, really much worse than your average Republican on a lot of questions. I mean, Biden is now pursuing Trump's immigration policy and that the real sin that Trump committed, and you can consult another piece I did in the gray zone about this, his real sin was that he bucked the establishment on foreign policy. If you look at his foreign policy, that is why they hate him, because he he didn't get how the U.S. empire works and he didn't care to understand it. He thought the American empire was a poorly run security business and that foreigners were ripping us off. And so he sets about vandalizing it, not systematically and ideologically coherently dismantling it, but just vandalizing it. He thinks he wants to close all the embassies in Africa. I mean, that means close down basically most of the office space for the CIA in the continent of Africa. He cuts troops back from uh, in Germany, wants th a third of the troops in Germany, which is a hub of in an, in an entire region-wide projection of American power, cuts that by a third. Uh, by a quarter in South Korea, which is a similar hub, draws down troops in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Syria. The national security establishment, the entire establishment in D.C. saw this, and they were horrified by this. And they felt this guy is totally dangerous and has to be stopped. So that, I think, is at the heart of Trump derangement syndrome. And then it just spread as a kind of cultural prejudice among the professional managerial class because this guy's crass and he's kind of an outer borough uh you know person he's born he's born with a silver spoon in his mouth he's ultra rich but he's got a kind of you know you know white ethnic tacky sort of way about him and so for the professional managerial class that's one of the greatest sins can i just uh interject one point uh to add on to something Christian mentioned, which was about the first anti-lockdown protests in the U.S. Um, similar, a similar scenario unfolded in Germany, and it speaks to the larger dynamic that we're in, which reminds me of the strategy of tension that took place in Italy, where the security state and NATO actually encouraged violence, uh, blaming it on communists in order to compel the citizenry to hew to the center, to uh, fear extremism. They actually used far-right elements to carry out some of these bombings in Italy, a bombing of a pizzeria in Milan, for example, in order to frighten the population of communism. In the United States, we saw in Michigan, where the, some of the first armed anti-lockdown protests, a group come out of nowhere called the Michigan Wolverines, which stormed the Michigan state capitol, and whose members were later accused of a seeking to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer, the Democratic governor. Uh, it turns out that th that plot was actually hatched by the FBI. The FBI was giving instructions to its asset inside the group, who is a a uh, former postal worker who's being paid twice what he earned at the U.S. Postal Service by the FBI. Uh, the, 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 the instructions to kidnap Whitmer were provided by the FBI. But more, but worse than that, we learned in the trial of these figures, they were all convicted despite the FBI basically telling them what to do and creating this plot, that the FBI told the local Michigan police to stand down and allow these armed anti-lockdown protesters to storm the Michigan state capitol. And so by doing that, it fueled, it placed uh, the 
COVID debate within firmly within the culture war with anyone who opposes lockdown is a right-wing extremist and anyone who supports lockdowns is a responsible citizen who cares about their neighbor. So naturally, the entire left got wrapped up in this without considering the merits of the lockdown. For example, how the infection fatality rate was manipulated and exaggerated by Neil Ferguson uh, from Imperial College in London, who had previously overestimated the amount of bird flu deaths by a factor of 50,000. In every case, he overestimated the, the infection fatality rate because of the desire to have a pandemic. And in this case, he succeeded. Those numbers were presented by Deborah Burks to Trump, then blasted out through the media that we were all, then large percentage of the population was going to die immediately unless we locked down. And the left, which is supposed to be critical of power, critical of uh, the technocracy, and which does not trust official voices and expert voices on foreign policy, which learned the lessons of Iraq, just fell right into line. There are so many layers being piled on top of the left to force them into compliance to the point where the left became the enforcement mechanism within the US intelligentsia for following the word of Fauci, who is now just substantially discredited. And, and I know you're both talking from a, a US based perspective, but you know, we saw the same thing. I'm in Canada and the exact same thing was happening here where the left, they just turned into these mouthpieces for the government, for big pharma, for corporations. Yep. And it was unlike anything I've ever seen before. And I wanted to ask you both like on a global scale, how could democratic societies descend so quickly into authoritarianism? What was that moment or moments in which this was able to happen? I think part of part of what that is, is just sloppy thinking by the left, right? That if if the left stands for a bigger public sector and greater regulation of the of corporations, right? And uh, a whole ethos of care and a redistribution of wealth in the name of taking care of the weak and the vulnerable, like those are good things, right? And uh, so what, what the left did was it, it took these things and then just sort of grafted them on to what was billing a, 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 a totalitarian, totally repressive, profoundly corrupt project by state and corporate power, right? That was billing itself as a health response, right? And they just uncritically said, oh, well, these are, you know, this matches with our basic premises. And they refuse to look at any kind of contradictions, right? They're like, oh, well, they're, they're claiming that the state is claiming that it's about looking out for people's health, yet they're not considering what the health impacts of a lockdown like this could be. They're monomaniacally focused on this one factor, COVID, and they're closing hospitals to cancer screening. Will that not have a, a, an increase, will that not lead to an increase in, in cancer deaths, right? I mean, they just didn't look at basic contradictions, right? Because there was a simple message that appealed to something that's legitimate within the left worldview, right? And so there was a collapse in critical thinking, ultimately. Or the mask, man, mask mandates. Critical thinking. What was that? Masking. I mean, we're told it's ableist to uh, criticize masking because people who are immunosuppressed have a disability, and we're supposed to accept that cloth masks somehow work, despite the Cochrane review of 
uh, dozens of peer-reviewed studies showing very little difference between masking and non-masking and protecting against COVID. But if it's ableist to oppose it, then how is it not ableist to uh, impose masks on children who are hard of hearing, who cannot hear and therefore cannot read their teacher's lips? That is never addressed. What about civil liberties? We're not supposed to consider vaccine passports as a violation of civil liberties of disproportionately people of color in the U.S. who are who did not get vaccinated in as high rates as white educated people who tend to comprise the lockdown left. I mean, in Washington, D.C., they tried to impose a vaccine mandate on the public schools and something like 60 percent of black youth had not gotten the COVID vaccine. And why would they? The World Health Organization yesterday finally dropped its advice and, sa and said, healthy young people do not need to be vaccinated against COVID. So why would healthy black youth in Washington, D.C., who comprise the vast majority of D.C. public school students, get vaccinated for this? And yeah. so they weren't. So the D.C. public school had to basically drop its mandate because even the NAACP, which is completely captured by corporate and democratic interests, said public schools will actually have to shut down because they will lose so much funding if you kick this many students out of public school. But this is another thing the left didn't consider, just as the left didn't stand up for Aboriginal people who are being thrown in internment camps in Australia because they had uh, positive COVID tests or symptoms, uh, which is what happened to them when Australia was colonized. We could go on and on for hours about the contradictions that of, of the left. Uh, but what we won't be able to do is actually debate them on this issue, because as you pointed out, Rosalie, they've they basically stopped talking about it after all the damage yeah. they did personally and professionally. Yeah. Yeah, that's outrageous. And also, I think it's important to to note the uh, recent Twitter files, you know, that Matt Taibbi uh, did the most recent batch, you know, and he was visited by the uh, IRS the day he was testifying to the, the Congressional Committee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. That's ironic. But that latest batch was about the Twitter's censorship of COVID discourse. And in that field of censorship, there was none of the pretense that you saw on others uh, campaigns of censorship around, you know, foreign policy issues or whatever else. They, they, they were openly, the FBI and Twitter were both openly acknowledging that these are true stories, but we don't want them circulating, right? They didn't They didn't hedge it with like, well, we think this is Russian disinformation and maybe you could check your policies. They were just like, hey, this these stories are being repeated by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. They need to be shut down, right? So there was that whole aspect of it too, that the left then didn't, wasn't exposed to a critical counter discourse because it's totally marinated in social media, which we now know was being managed. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, the the denial of leftists, my left friends around that is shocking to me, right? A lot of people say, well, we already knew that. And it's like, well, if you already knew that, why aren't you interested in the details? Because you damn sure didn't know what the details were, right? And if you didn't know it, now, then this is a real revelation. So yeah, the left is trying to back away from its role in this horror show, and um, that, that shouldn't be allowed. Um, I, I just want to pivot a little bit and talk about the rise of digital surveillance tools. So 
you both wrote extensively about this and, and Christian, you wrote the book about it, you know, in 2003, you wrote the soft cage where you detailed the, the history of surveillance from the 1800s to the present day. And, and in that book, you actually wrote, no matter how mundane, surveillance is always tied up with questions of power and political struggle. So with that in mind, with global, with lockdowns, you know, that was only able to, we were only able to make that happen through the rise of digital technologies. So I wanted to ask you both, you know, as all of this was unfolding and still unfolding, where do you see these digital tools going? Christian, can well, you? Yeah, that I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I think that it's just going to be more of what we have now, which is this tightening surveillance regime. And the, the, the cover for it is scientism, right? It's this idea that, that it's objective, that this is not political. This is about public health. This is about efficiency. This is about something that's apolitical, but nothing is ever apolitical. A theorist who came to some prominence among us COVID critics during the pandemic is Augusto Del Noche, who was an Italian theorist who was only translated into English in 2017. But in the early 60s, he begins warning against the totalitarianism of the center. He says, we know about the totalitarianism of the right, that's fascism. We know about the totalitarian potential of the left, that's Stalinism. But what people are totally blind to is the totalitarianism of the center. And what that's all about are these claims of objectivity and scientism, the reduction of the scientific method, the messy, contested scientific method, the reduction of that to a catechism and a new priesthood, right? Scientism and an ideology. I mean, so 50 years ago, he was warning about this as totalitarian. And there were, you know, Giorgio Ogambin is another Italian theorist who prior to the pandemic was writing about the, the totalitarian potential of liberal democracy. His book on the state of exception explains how every liberal constitutional order has within it this escape clause, the state, the state of exception, the state of emergency. With, in which the constitutional order can legally suspend itself. And I remember reading and just thinking like, oh, this is another clever European. What, what are they talking about? You know. But now you really realize, okay, th this is exactly the mechanism. This is exactly the threat that we face now. And so, yes, surveillance is prevalent and it's becoming more prevalent because digital technology is embedding itself into our social lives more and more and people you know, don't see it in political terms. They see it as a convenience. They see it in terms of efficiency. They see it in terms of whatever the cover story is. Um, and there are lots of, as I said in the soft cage, there are lots of benefits that come with this. So this is part of the trick, right? You know, we're not forced to do this stuff. I mean, um, John Poindexter, who was infamous during the Iran-Contra affair, was in the late 90s put in charge of a project at DARPA, the Defense Research Agency, and it was called the Total Information Awareness Project. And it was about trying to come up with a system that could gather all of the data that was being you know, generated by the, the new technology point of sales, this or that. He was exposed, the whole thing was shut down. People were like, we'll never do that. But of course, his vision does come to pass but not because it is imposed by the state upon people, but because it's harnessed to these, you know, these devices of convenience, right? And so, as I said in that book, it's, it's not so much that the state is, uh, you know, 
following us around is that we, we we're increasingly compelled to check in as it were you know every time you're getting on there and getting your little dopamine hit you're also essentially you know uploading your location in time and space and frequently your most intimate thoughts to the state not directly to the state but to some private corporations that aren't covered by the first amendment and the fourth amendment because they're private sector states and then they sell this information to everyone who wants to buy it and can afford it. And well, lo and behold, the government is one of their customers, right? So the, the rise of these private corporations that gather this information and then redistribute it as data products, you know, they're, they're real companies and that's their real business model, but they're also a crucial link and cloak for state power to keep tabs on us. Yeah, I published a piece by myself and Jeremy Lafredo about the scourge of vaccine passports and in particularly the digital vaccine or health passport and how it was the portal towards a totalitarian future. And what we did in opening that piece was point to the example of the Jharkhand province in India, which is kind of a laboratory for many of the horrors that will eventually be visited on the liberal democratic West uh, right now, Jharkhand students, a majority, according to a recent poll, have forgotten how to read because of the lockdowns that were imposed on them during COVID. But prior to the, during COVID, the lockdowns that were imposed on them under the auspices of fighting a pandemic, prior to the declaration of a pandemic, um, the Jharkhand province was a testing ground for the Aadhaar system, which is a digital ID system that is spun out by an Indian billionaire named Nandan Nilekani, who has been hailed as a hero for this by Bill Gates, who is supporting this system and has sought to import it into the democratic West during the pandemic. And what took place in Jharkhand was that many poor and illiterate members of the peasant population were unable to access their government subsidies and therefore were unable to eat. They could not get their rice and flour uh, that rations because they had not either enrolled in Adhar or they were unable to use the system, which requires you to um, input your biometric data, your all five fingerprints and your iris scans. And so those of them who couldn't use it died, including a 64-year-old woman who died of hunger and exhaustion because the Adhar system transferred her pension payments to another person without her permission. An 11-year-old girl named Santoshi Kumar starved to death because uh, she died begging for rice because her family's ration card had been denied again and again by Adhar. And so that's what happens when you are put in a state of exception as Agam the, the term that Agamben coined, which Christian referred to here. I think Giorgio Agamben came out right at the beginning of the pandemic and said, this is my worst nightmare. The state of exception is going to expand massively. So who is placed in a state of exception in the supposedly democratic West? It was the unvaccinated who were demonized and then excluded from society, particularly in Western Europe where Karl Lauterbach, who is the German Fauci, the health minister, declared that the vaccine, the mRNA vaccine was absolutely safe, had no health risk at all, and therefore it was a social ill for anyone to refuse it, and that he would seek to impose a lockdown exclusively of the unvaccinated, that the unvaccinated could not only not enter businesses, but they could not leave their homes. In Lithuania, which is another kind of uh, laboratory, 
for technocratic experiments and digital ID, health IDs were imposed. People who are unvaccinated and the tiny minority there who didn't get the COVID mRNA vaccine reported that they had been banished from society, that they had to go to special uh, fruit and vegetable markets that had been set up on the street and live like paupers because they were not allowed to enter even supermarkets. And we heard U.S. media personalities like Don Lemon on CNN actually call for the unvaccinated to be starved, to be completely shut out of society. So the mechanism was put there. Not just Don Lemon, Noam Chomsky. And Noam Chomsky called for the mm -hmm. unvaccinated to be placed in concentration camps. Uh, and actually, you know what? Centers. we do have a clip that I wanted to show you with Noam Chomsky. So, um, you know, in 2021, he made those remarks about unvaccinated people being segregated, that they should be segregated from society and that they're a danger to others. And in a follow-up interview with Activism Munich, um, Zen from Activ Activism Munich interviewed Chomsky and asked him to clarify his remarks. This is months later. So I yeah. wanted to play that first clip for you right now. And then I want to ask your thoughts about this. Professor Chomsky, you said in an interview, and I'm paraphrasing here, that unvaccinated people should not be forced but should isolate themselves voluntarily and code food is their problem. Are you still of that opinion given that the vaccine has been shown to be only for self-protection and not for the protection of others, particularly when it comes to the Omricon variant? Un unvaccinated people are free to do whatever they want, except harm others. Nobody has the right to walk around with an assault rifle and shoot randomly. That's not freedom. Okay, so there's, before you say anything, there's that clip. And I want to share one more clip with you of Chomsky speaking. This is the same interview. There's a big popular movement saying we don't believe anything. Actually, that has part of its roots in the neoliberal assault against the population, which has, that's 40 years of a major attack on the general population. And it's led, just to give you some figures, in the United States, there was a study by the highly respectable Rand Corporation, quasi-governmental uh, uh, investigation corporation. They studied the uh, transfer of wealth from the lower 90% of the population working class, middle class, transfer of wealth to them, from them to the top 1% during the neoliberal years. Their estimate is about $50 trillion. That's pretty effective highway robbery. And it's had an effect all over the United States, all over Europe, with the same things, not to that extent, but similar things have been happening. It's led to anger, resentment, distrust of authority, uh, distrust of government, undermining of democracy, the uh, anti-vaccine hysteria is one lethal aspect of that. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you both, what do you make of these contradictions? This is the same interview. Well, uh, just really, I'll try to be quick. Um, uh -huh. Chomsky repeats or echoes the logical fallacy that we heard constantly 
uh, particularly from elements of the left that wanted to equate uh, getting injected with the experimental mRNA technology with a social good or caring for your neighbor and essentially a, a form of uh, you know socialist praxis when the vaccine never, ever showed any potential to prevent infection or transmission. And, you know, this is something that I said from the beginning when I introduced my opposition to vaccine mandates. It's not even a vaccine. A vaccine prevents infection and transmission. It is a gene therapy at best. And the bivalent uh, booster is, uh, you know, showing like 0.4% uh, improvement from uh, not getting vaccinated in fighting COVID symptoms. So it, it's just pharma junk. But the point is, it doesn't prevent infection or transmission. So Chomsky saying that you're selfish and you're harming others by not getting vaccinated is just false. And I, why he can't admit this, why so many other people still can't acknowledge this point, which has even been acknowledged by Bill Gates and Anthony Fauci, is beyond me. And then the second point is that the pandemic was used the same way the Ukraine proxy war is being used as a means of raking funding and money from the population, the working population, and funneling funneling it into the pockets of the 1%. We saw the global 90% placed under lockdown, unable to work, having um, their well-being destroyed. There's a great uh, initiative or website called Collateral Global, which focuses on the impact of lockdowns, continuing impact of lockdowns on the population of the developing world, particularly Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America. And it's more catastrophic than we even saw here with this eviction crisis that we faced um, or with the banking crisis now, which Christian has correctly identified in part as a uh, knock-on effect of the lockdowns. But in any case, um, the wealth of Bill Gates and the tech billionaires who benefited from remote learning from the population being forced onto screens and forced to order from Amazon increased exponentially while everyone else got poor. Chomsky doesn't, I don't know why he can't understand how that was, how the pandemic and the lockdowns were beneficial to our tech overlords. I guess I wasn't I mean, as quick as I said it. I, I think that, you know, some of it is just, you know, reading headlines say, well, it, it you know, you get, you get it, uh, you know, you, you get an antibody boost, uh, seems to help with symptoms, therefore it must stop transmission. But it didn't because they found that people who were vaccinated and people who weren't vaccinated had the same viral load in their noses when tested, right? And we now know that the antibody that shows up for that two to three month boost is part of the, the immunoglobulin G group, IgG G four, which is associated with the suppression of inflammation. It's not associated with killing kind of foreign pathogens, right? And that actually the, the mRNA viruses are shown to damage some of the uh, immunoglobulin G group that are associated with killing foreign pathogens, even as it helps with this temporary boost of, of this symptom suppressing thing. So, I mean, I think to be fair, to be as charitable as possible, like that's where a lot of people are thinking, well, what, I mean, it, if it if this gene therapy has some effect on on suppressing the symptoms, then it must translate somehow into transmissibility. But it doesn't because they're different mechanisms. Um, in terms of the, so I mean that's you know that's trying to be charitable. And I mean other than that, uh, this also revealed a serious death wish throughout society, right? And it's like yep. the kind of like anger 
and, and like bloodlust in people looking for some sort of scapegoat, some sort of outlet, that's a big part of it, right? People are frustrated, they're scared. Global capitalism is increasingly violent, it's increasingly unstable, and people are anxious about that. And so without thinking, they like they let all that anger cathect upon the unvaccinated because they're being bombarded by the media constantly and told to hate these people, right? So they gave they gave in to that feeling and they enjoyed the cathartic feeling of they're bad, I'm good, right? And they're told that they're their political foes. So it's an opportunity to put Trump supporters in camps. Hey, yeah. that'll take you know, care of the problem. Yeah. You know what though, with, with Chomsky, it, it feels different for me personally because he wrote the book, Manufactured Consent. Um, he wrote the book on how to avoid being falling prey to propaganda. And he fell for the very propaganda that he warned us about 30 years ago. So to me, that was especially jarring to see. and. And kind but, of disappointing, you know. He's also look. I mean, he's all he's he's pushing ninety years old. He's facing his mortality. It's scary, yeah. right? So, and I yeah. think, you know, I, I think also a lot of secular leftists don't deal with that. I mean, you know, don't if you don't believe in God and you don't believe in an afterlife, it's uh, like the prospect of losing this is is in yeah. some ways much more frightening. And and I I don't think Chomsky is religious. I think he's I'm assuming he's a very secular person. So. You know, again, to be charitable, I think it's just the fear of a very old man, right? That's mm -hmm. part of it. But it doesn't excuse really outrageous totalitarian sensibilities that he's uh, disseminating. And he's a very powerful voice on the left. You know, about the financial aspect, if I may, I mean, this is very important, okay? The, the 2008 happens, and there's a massive increase in government debt because the U.S., government goes in and basically rescues the bank, basically nationalizes the banking system partially without saying it, right? So there's a surge that this is measured essentially on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. What happens is the Treasury Department issues government debt and sells it to the world. And then the central bank, the Federal Reserve, prints money and buys that debt. And so in 2008, the Federal Reserve loads up its balance sheet with four and a half trillion dollars worth of this debt. It is managing to get rid of some of that and, you know, taper off that the, the, the Fed balance sheet goes down to 3.7 trillion from 4.5 trillion right before the pandemic hits. Then because of the lockdowns, right, the U.S. federal government is saying basically most economic activity has to stop, right? Well, people will starve if you do that. So then they're simultaneously and we're going to give you money. And I'm not against giving people money. I'm not against stimulus. I'm not against handouts, welfare. I'm for all that. But when it's done in response to a totally misguided artificial crisis caused by these harebrained and, and absolutely devastating lockdowns, it's a different issue, right? So they lock down the economy. And then to prevent total economic devastation, they have to give people and companies lots and lots of money. So the federal government in the second quarter of 2020 borrows in the course of three months almost $3 trillion. And the Federal Reserve's balance sheet goes up to over $7 trillion. Okay, And then there's further spending and it goes up to close to $9 billion. No, no sorry, trillion dollars, right? 
after two years of this, you know, and, and all this leads to, to disruption of, of supply chains and it's being mimicked around the world with the lockdowns in China. Um, just one example of a bottleneck, we have a shortage during the height of the pandemic of around 80,000 truckers, we're 80,000 truckers short. That leads to, you know, bottlenecks. Insufficient supply while there's fairly robust demand because people have been given a lot of money by the federal government. And I'm not against that, right? After two years, this turns into inflation, which is first being dismissed as, well, that's transitory. And then they realize in the spring of 2022, as inflation is headed towards 9%, wait a minute, this inflation isn't abating. And so the Federal Reserve then increases interest rates faster than they had ever been increased before in American history. And as a result, the banking crisis begins. Now, it seems to be, have been you know, staunched for the moment through government bailouts in Switzerland and here, right? But what happens is that as the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, the price on new government debt goes up to around 5%. Now the government is borrowing money from the world at 5%. During this flood of, of purchasing power into the economy during the lockdowns, all of this government debt is basically earning nothing. So banks load up on this and they have lots and lots of deposits. As interest rates go up, it becomes more expensive to borrow. People and corporations start drawing down their deposits because they don't want to borrow expensive money when they've got money in the bank. The banks suddenly realize, wait, we don't have enough money cash on hand to cover our liabilities. So they have to start selling off all of these zero interest, effectively, you know, 0.5% earning treasury bonds. They start dumping these before their maturity date so they don't get the face value of the treasury bond. They dump these on secondary markets. The more they dump, the lower and lower the resale value, and you get this banking crisis. Silicon Valley Bank loses $2 billion selling, dumping treasury bonds to just cover its cash requirements to, to keep doing business. It reports this stock owners, stockholders flip out, the value of the stock drops by 60%, and this reverberates out through the economy, right? This is a direct cause. This is caused by the lockdowns. It's not only that. There's the deeper problem of the massive bailouts from 2008. But it's important to note that the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, a key measure of the, the role of the government in providing life support for capitalism, had plateaued in 2014, and it's going down starting in 2018. And then it goes straight up because of the lockdowns, right? And it's like, no one wants to deal with this. The left is in total denial about this. It's like, you know, this is another impact of these lockdowns and people were warning about this kind of stuff at the time and they were literally censored by the government on social media not allowed to get this message out okay so this question max is, is for you um earlier you mentioned that you were you weren't totally skeptical in the beginning and you were just kind of waiting and learning as you go as you more information was coming in about the about covid but I noticed in the gray zone, like you, you had a number of really awesome articles, like about the rise of surveillance tech and the consequences of lockdowns. And you really focused on Western democracies. But I noticed that, you know, Western democracies, they modeled their behavior and their actions on on China, because China was the first country to impose lockdowns. China was the first country to implement these digital tracking tools. But I didn't see much criticism for 
China specifically. Is there a reason for this or was it just not on your mind at the time or? Well, we actually def defended China early on against the uh, lab leak allegations because they were coming from fanatical neocon sources that obviously wanted a new Cold War with China. And it took me about another year to really start looking into Eco Health Alliance and considering what Sam Husseini, the researcher, had sought to brought had sought to bring to my doorstep uh, about COVID origins and how gain of function research that was actually funded by Pentagon Pentagon's DARPA research arm and USAID at the Wuhan Institute of Virology was at least extremely dangerous and may have had a bioweapons component too, which Christian can speak to in more detail. So there was a constant evolution in thinking there um, and a reflexive urge to reject some of the more outlandish um, theories about China because they were coming from sources that really sought to stoke a new Cold War. And we continue to try to expose new Cold War propaganda at the gray zone. So there, there was that. Um, but there's also a general principle I try to apply, which is that we at the gray zone come from within the supposedly democratic West that seeks to impose its values on countries like China, um, even Russia, seeks to exact regime change around the world by uh, importing liberalism at the barrel of a gun or what it sees as liberalism. And we can only impact we can have our mo the mo most impact by holding our own governments accountable, holding our own societies accountable, and that by attacking China, we really would achieve nothing except serving as a force multiplier for all of the other corporate media outlets that are already doing that, and for a substantial part of the professional left, which has been doing that as well. So we're also we're often trying to do what everyone is not doing. And I think when you see Australia implementing quarantine camps and COVID zero or New Zealand doing that, and their leaders are being praised around the world, especially Jacinda Ardern, and they're being praised as these you know, liberal icons, that it's more of our responsibility to take them on than it is to take on a system like China's, which doesn't even pretend to be democratic, which doesn't even seek to uh, put a, a liberal patina on its system. Um, at the same time, yeah, uh, that, that, that wasn't where we were at early on. Yeah, no, that's great. Thank you for clarifying. I was just curious about that. Um, and, you know, I'm jumping well, one around. More thing. Can I, can I say one yeah. thing quickly? It was yeah. interesting. Uh, China's protests against COVID zero, which were mostly, uh, being carried out by young people who had, were missing their youth uh, by being welded into their homes. Uh, when they came out and protested, what happened? China and Chinese, China's government, its non-democratic government, immediately ended COVID zero and ended the lockdowns. And people said, we are going to get infected because that's what we have to do now. What did the West do when its population came out and protested? It shot them with fire with, with with fire hoses. It beat them with truncheons. It shot them with it fired tear gas at them. It demonized them. 
it arrested them and it censored them online. So uh, they responded right away to their population. And I think it was because they feared that a larger sector of the population was going to rise up. And I think that's that's an ironic commentary on the democratic West. Going back to the digital surveillance tools, um, Christian, what would you say to a leftist who says, you know, I'm not concerned about these, my privacy, like, you know, it seemed there was a brief window of time where we were talking about the consequences of privacy and security in a matter of using these digital tools, but we're not having those conversations anymore from what I've seen. So what would you say to someone who said, you know, I have nothing to hide that age old privacy argument? Uh, well, if they were left to say, yeah, what, it, you know, what about, uh, you know, social movements? Can't you see a utility for privacy for social movements? I mean, can't you see a threat to democratic agitation that has been so central to social progress over the years? So that's one thing you could say. Another thing you could say is, uh, you know, wake up, what the hell's wrong with you? Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's a real sad commentary if that's where people are at. But you know, I mean, there's two things about privacy. One is that it's it's kind of an instrumentalist civil for civil liberties in general. A, there's an instrumentalist sensibility. This I I always defended civil liberties, but the instrumentalist role for me was stronger than it is now. Now I increasingly see them as an ends in and of themselves. So I was arguing for the importance of our civil liberties because you can do good things with them. You can create social change. You couldn't have had a, a robust labor movement that won gains for the American working class if you didn't have protection of basic civil liberties. So, right, the, the, these civil liberties are an instrument you can do things with, but they're also an ends in and of themselves. Who wants to live in a society where you're constantly monitored and, uh, you know, by corporations and the state? So I, I definitely do not want to live that way. So I think people need to to wise up and maybe they should go read my my book, The Soft Cage. But because the instrumentalist role should make sense to leftists if they're interested in social change. Um, OK, so, you know, we talk about left and right in this conversation. I wanted to ask you both, you know, given where we're at right now and at, as power is shifting more to these external organizations, these supranational bodies, um, do you think it's even relevant even more to talk about left versus right? Is there another paradigm in which we should be looking at these issues? I don't know. You know, at, at semantics, it strikes me as a kind of dead end. So I, I don't really, I don't okay. find these sort these sorts of conversations particularly useful. Um, you know, other than if people are organizing around real issues together, that's what matters. And you know, the, the question of, of how people label themselves really should be secondary to, to what are people coming together around? Are you organizing a union in your workplace? Are you pushing back against insane lockdowns in your community? That, that, that's, that's what matters. And getting too lost in semantics about, well, what is left? What is right? You know, I don't know. I don't see that as particularly useful. I, I think it is important to talk about the origins of COVID, though. And more and more evidence is coming out that this definitely was a lab leak, right? And that, as Max said, the U.S. government funded this, right? A lot of people, um, well, there was a very interesting article in the New York Times a couple of days ago by Megan K. Stack, in which she said, well, Anthony Fauci and Peter Dyzak, who is the president of EcoHealth Alliance, 
could have said a lot more. It's, so it's very critical of the, you know, the Saint Fauci. And, but in it, she, you know, while she's critical of how Dazak and Fauci pilloried those who pointed to a lab leak theory and evidence of a lab leak, right? She then also describes, uh, throws in this, this pathologizing or pejorative phrase about, oh, the, the insanity of the bioweapons thing, or the silly bioweapon stuff. And that this is important, I think, because it's not about bioweapons, it's about biodefense, okay? This is not a weird secret thing. This is a massive program that you can read all about in government documents. The history of bioweapons is that under Nixon, the U.S. signs this agreement that bans offensive bioweapons, right? And then that goes into effect in 72, and it comes into full effect in 1975, and the U.S. is no longer stockpiling or building bioweapons. However, it's very legal to do biodefense, and there's all sorts of research done on trying to anticipate how other states might use bioweapons or how nature might threaten us with pandemics. And that's the kind of research that involved gain of function. And that's what was the funding stream. It goes from USAID through UC Davis to EcoHealth Alliance and Metabiota, partially owned by Rosemont Seneca, Hunter Biden's investment uh, company. And EcoHealth Alliance, in turn, funded gain of function research on bat viruses that had been collected in China, and they funded gain-of-function research on those viruses in China, and those, those they got samples of those viruses, and there was other gain-of-function, it seems, some circumstantial evidence being done elsewhere in the U.S., perhaps by Ralph Barrick at University of North Carolina. Anthony Fauci said that in front of the Senate. Um, so that that's what that's the the connection and it's not people should not be like, don't take the bait of this like bioweapons what do you like tinfoil hat it's like yeah google biosecurity okay biodefense right it's a massive it's an, an all government program after the anthrax attacks following 9 11 in 2001 there is a a massive push for this and it involves universities corporations and nonprofits this is not a secret thing and if we're going to prevent more problems like this, then we need to have a really serious and grown-up conversation about the bio-defense space and this funding, right? Um, and it's important to note that we got off light with COVID. There are viruses in the Wuhan lab, from what we know, that they that the scientists believe would have an infection fatality rate of 15%. Okay. This virus has an infection fatality rate of around zero, you know, 0.3% at its at its worst, right? And it's um John Ionidis has printed out, you know, has has done more recent research. And I think that the infection fatality rate is even lower than that, right? So, but there it's not crazy to imagine that there could be another escape of a virus that's much more deadly and, and would wreak a lot more havoc. So I think, I think, and I think this is coming down the pike as a policy issue and an intellectual issue. And that, that hopefully the left will realize that it can't keep defending the status quo, that this is a very serious issue that, that needs people of all political persuasions to demand transparency. The Biden administration passed a law, well, the, the 
entire Congress voted unanimously to declassify all documents relating to the origins of COVID. And in his in signing that legislation into law, Biden added one caveat in his statement, which was like, I'm going to release all the information as long as none of it harms national security. So obviously, you know, they're going to try and protect their bio defense programs, in part, I think, because they don't they don't want the culpability, right? They don't want these things. They don't want these programs shut down. You know, they don't, you know, you can imagine all the scenarios that could flow from a real accounting. Um, okay, so just a couple of final questions here. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you, what do you think the future looks like with power being consolidated to these supranational organizations? And we're seeing this explosive rise in surveillance tech and we're seeing this push towards normalizing lockdowns as a lifestyle. And we have all of this new technology underway. So we're already living in this world and we've become so disconnected from ourselves and each other and, and the planet. Um, where do you think we're, we're headed, Max? That's a big question. Yeah. It's a huge question. <laughs> I mean, I think the, the reaction against violations of state sovereignty and violations of individual rights and individual sovereignty are being captured by the Western right, forces on the right. Uh, for example, German Germany's AFD, Alternative for Deutschland, has emerged as one of the major parties opposing funding the Ukraine proxy war, which has been devastating for Germany. They lost their main gas pipeline from Europe through a U.S. attack, U.S. sabotage. And th that, but the sentiments that the German public feels that led 50,000 people to protest at Brandenburg Gate at a protest organized by the left, by a D-Linka party, a left party leader, is, it goes beyond the right. What I'm saying is the right is going to gain strength. What we identify as the so sovereigntist or nationalist right will continue to gain strength across the West as the outcome of the increased power of global entities like the World Health Organization or uh, the U.S. continuing to impose its power on Western Europe. I mean, another factor in the right's rise in Germany was the migration crisis that the U.S. caused in Syria, where Germany accepted one million Syrian refugees after the U.S. flooded their country with weapons and gave jihadist gangs uh, the, the run of the house, uh, trained them through the CIA, encouraged the rise of ISIS. And we can look at the, you know, these World Health Organization pandemic treaties in the same way as violating individual rights by requiring governments to sign up to perform in lockstep fashion according to WHO rules during a pandemic. Um, and the WHO is funded not only uh, substantially by the United States or another powerful economic power, China, but also by Bill Gates. He's one of the top funders. Who is Bill Gates accountable to? except his buddies at Davos, the hovercraft elite. So, I mean, I'm trying to tie this into your question about right and left. The left has not been responsive to the backlash against the lack of not only economic power that so many people have experienced since uh, the massive contraction of uh, 
of of capital uh, access that the, the the middle and working class can access since the financial crisis, but also the lack of in, the 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 with the rollback of individual rights and the rollback of uh, national sovereignty. You know, it gives them a sense that they that their vote doesn't really matter. Um, Donald Trump caters to that far better than anyone in the Democratic Party. Uh, the, the Democrats are fully on board. There isn't one Democrat that's saying we should not be sending billions and billions more to one of the most corrupt governments in the world in Kiev. Um, so we have that, 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 that's kind of the, I think the, the, the right, or what we consider the right is going to gain strength because of these kinds of uh, because of these attacks on national sovereignty and individual rights. Uh, what we will also see is the continued rise of digital surveillance, not only through digital ID, but through a central bank digital currency. Rishi Sunak, who's the new, relatively new prime minister of the UK, has endorsed central bank digital currency. He happens to be the son-in-law of Nanda Nilakani's business partner. Nilakani is the Indian billionaire I mentioned earlier who had pioneered digital digital ID in India and is close friends with Bill Gates. Um, Tony Blair has also been uh, agitating aggressively for digital health IDs and digital passports, including to travel. His Tony Blair Foundation has accepted $20 million from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation over the past decade or so. So he's essentially a lobbyist. And they're not going to be stopped. Central bank digital currency is the nightmare of anyone who believes in civil liberties, because once central banks are able to take cash out of our hands and, and monitor all of our transactions, then those who are declared in a state of exception, because maybe they haven't taken their vaccine, or maybe they're part of a political dissident movement that is declared uh, uncouth, can be starved of cash. They can literally be sanctioned. And we saw this take place during the pandemic, for example, with the Canadian truckers who, after a de declaration of a state of emergency by the Trudeau government, saw that their supporters were having their bank accounts or their, their, their donations seized and their bank accounts frozen. Uh, what did the left in Canada do? They ordered a they organized a people's blockade in Ottawa to actually physically confront the truckers in the streets rather than protest this assault on civil liberties that will affect the left if it ever meaningful meaningfully challenges power again. Uh, we've also seen PayPal, Venmo remove uh, sister publications of the gray zone from their systems and seize their accounts, the accounts of Consortium News or Mint Press or uh, my friend who contributes to us occasionally, Wyatt Reed, he's a journalist who after reporting from the Donbass region in Eastern, uh, the, the um, Independent Republic of Donetsk had his funds frozen by Venmo and PayPal. I I've, like, have trouble getting him paid when he contributes to us uh, an article. This is uh, a terrifying future that was enabled by the compliance of Western populations to the pandemic restrictions, and we're just one crisis away. And finally, I think the crisis that we're supposed that we seem to be building towards is something related to climate change. Uh, Rosalie, you mentioned that we're getting further and further away from the earth and nature. Well, the solution to climate change reminds me a lot of the solution we were sold 
to the pandemic that if everyone would just take this experimental mRNA vaccine, the pandemic would go away. Well, now we're told if we would just uh, decarbonize by 2050 and power our economies with renewable energy, everything will be just fine. But renewable energy is contin the, the, the rise of renewable energy, powering our economies on it, is contingent on the further destruction of the earth through dirty mining, including the use of child slave labor in Congo, or we're seeing in Nevada right now, a massive lithium mine being built to um, you know, extract the minerals needed for solar power, windmills, and other renewable sources. And an entire reservation of uh, Paiute American Indians is going to be wiped out there. So the real environmental activists are actually fighting there. They're not standing with Greta Thunberg, who's visiting the World Economic Forum. So it's, you know, there's left, there's right, and there are people who are actually thinking critically. Thank you. Well said. Um, Christian, where do you think we're headed? Well, I mean, I think, the, you know, the easy, you, know, you ask a crystal ball, crystal ball question, which is hard to answer. The easy answer is it's going to be like the present, but worse, right? We're going to see uh, a further development of this totalitarianism of the center, like, which is guys, you know, dresses itself up under scientism, this apolitical justifications for what is a form of authoritarian class rule by the global 1%. And it will build consent, particularly among the professional managerial class through this ideology of scientism, which is not the same as real scientific discourse and the messy scientific struggles that use the scientific method, right? So that's the easy thing, but that's, you know, uh, prediction. But there could also be a growing awareness and there could be uh, crises that come along, right? I mean... It's not like the 1% gets everything at once all the time. And it's not like it's totally unified. There are different factions. And um, so there, you could imagine ruptures, sudden changes, economic crisis, and people increasingly pushing back against this stuff and, and no longer believing this. That Max and I are focused on our you know, our milieu, the left, right? And so it, it's pretty depressing, but there are a lot of people in the world and a lot of people in the US who have emerged from COVID much more critical, right? That they realize, wait a minute, they will say practically anything to us. And when they're caught as liars, they'll, they won't own up to it, right? I mean, there's a lot of people who are more critical of the system and of its stories and of the hierarchies, class and bureaucratic hierarchies that control their lives and make their lives increasingly difficult. So maybe that tendency will grow and we'll see more organized pushback and we'll see a growing counterculture of dissent and critical thinking and autonomy. I don't think that's an impossibility. Interesting. Um, thank you both so much. That, those were some really insightful answers. Um, I did have one question for you both. One final question. You know, this conference is called Free Speech in the Left. And, you know, I know that you may not speak explicitly about free speech as a distinct topic, but I was hoping that both of you could say a few words of, about why you chose to participate. Well, I, I speak about free speech um, explicitly. Um, okay, yeah. Yeah, I mean, free speech is 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 very 
important, right? I've already, to some extent, spoken to this, that, you know, there's an instrumentalist thing. It's like, you can do things with it, right? How are you going to organize a mass movement of workers and consumers and, and, you know, regular people to fight for their interests against corporate power and a, an oppressive state if you can't communicate, right? And you can't gather, right? So there's stuff you can do with it. But also people, particularly Americans, are very attached to their personal autonomy. It's one of the few little things that we still have is the right to say and believe whatever we want. And I think that uh, the infringement on that and, and, and the criminalization and, and the pathologization of dissident opinion and speech and ideas is experienced by people as a very intimate, very unpleasant intrusion upon their autonomy, and they don't like it, and it makes them angry, and it politicizes them. So I, mean, I think free speech is both a means and an ends. And um, what else is there to say? You know? Thank you. Yeah, I agreed to participate in this conference on free speech and the left because I was invited. And uh, I, I don't know, I, I, don't, I still don't totally even know what it is. But you know, I speak for myself. I somewhat enjoy the sound of my own voice. Um, I, I don't know if Christian as a academic does, but many do. And uh, it was a provocative, interesting topic. And, you know, it's very rare that me and Christian get uh, asked to present our views in a, a critical setting on COVID and what we've thought for the past few years. No one has really sought to debate Christian's excellent piece, which I think completely laid out all of the criticisms I've had of the left throughout the pandemic. Um, it should have sparked a wider debate and said, instead he was met with insults. And what happened to me, I think was more extreme where people that I've known for years and years, whose careers I've even supported in journalism, uh, began either attacking me not by name or completely cut me off. Um, you know, I was denounced to my face by people who could have never debated me in public and declared this, you know, persona non grata. And I think we've been vindicated. History has absolved us. So that was one reason I wanted to, to do this. But on the issue of free speech, um, we heard from Noam Chomsky earlier, and it's deeply depressing. His book, Manufacturing Consent, is kind of about how free speech is suppressed in the democratic West, where a government that needs to appear democratic or liberal cannot just censor people outright or jail them for speaking out against the government or dissenting. And so it ha it imposes a model of propaganda to either marginalize them or simply overwhelm them with corporate propaganda. That's the Ed Herman model of propaganda. And it's it was preceded by a more pioneering work, uh, Inventing Reality by Michael Parenti, which also explained really well how our media worked. And we experienced that at the gray zone. That's my father. So much. Yeah. In case you didn't know. Yeah. And, you know, you follow in his footsteps. I mean, Michael background. Parenti was a huge influence on, uh, on me, uh, but actually only after I met Christian at The Nation. Um, but to, to my point, our free speech is not being suppressed by uh, government bureaucrats or officials 
who are throwing us in jail like Julian Assange, although that shows where the, 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 the West is going. That if I actually really directly threatened the national security state in an existential way, I would absolutely be imprisoned and be met with a trial in you know, the Eastern Virginia District Court. Um, and I'd be held for years and years before even seeing a trial. But what we experience instead is our Wikipedia page basically declares the gray zone a terrorist organization. Uh, my Wikipedia page declares me essentially an anti-Semitic terrorist loving liar who's sponsored by Vladimir Putin. And we are met with shadow bans on social media platforms. I no longer even use our Facebook page for the gray zone because we're so al algorithmically banned and suppressed. Uh, we were shadow banned on Twitter until Elon Musk, the rebel billionaire, came in and then released the Twitter files showing how government agencies and the intelligence apparatus and the FBI were actually telling Twitter who to ban, even if, and especially if they were presenting truthful information. So I've been uh, also blacklisted by uh, Jewish establishment groups for my reporting on Palestine, called an anti-Semitic self-hating Jew. Uh, that's all in order to isolate me and the gray zone from polite society so that no one could hear us speak. And that to me is a way of getting around the First Amendment and restricting the speech of those who dissent and effectively interfere with power. So it's important for me to have as many platforms as possible and to defend free speech, but also to help redefine what it means to have free speech, because it no longer means in neoliberal society like the U.S. to have the First Amendment right to speak uh, in public institutions when those public institutions are so firmly integrated with private industry. And we can't tell if the tail's wagging the dog or the other way around. Um, and what, what I found, just in closing, is that there's a silent majority that's increasingly loud that also feels the same way, sees the same process taking place, and is looking for ways of fighting back. And one way they've been fighting back is just by supporting independent media. Um, I never thought we would be as successful as we are at the gray zone, and it's just because of the popular frustration with corporate media and the censorship of corporate controlled platforms by unelected, opaque government entities and the intelligence apparatus. Mm -hmm. Wow, that, thank you so much. Um, this was a really great discussion. I think we'll leave it there. We're well over time. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. Thank you so much. I really thank appreciate you. the conversation. Yeah, no, thanks for making this possible for facilitating it. Yeah, no, thank you. Good luck with the rest of the conference. Thank you.